Chapter Twenty Two, Part Two of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Two, The Hundred Years' War, Charles V, Part Two. Edward Third, weary of thus roaming with his army over France without obtaining any decisive result, and without even managing to get into his hands any one of the good towns which he had promised himself, says Froissart, that he would tan and hide in such sort that they would be glad to come in accord with him, resolved to direct his efforts against the capital of the kingdom, where the Dauphin kept himself close. On the 7th of April, 1360, he arrived hard by Montreux, and his troops spread themselves over the outskirts of Paris in the form of an investing or besieging force. But he had to do with a city protected by good ramparts, and well supplied with provisions, and with a prince cool, patient, determined, free from any illusion as to his danger or his strength, and resolved not to risk any of those great battles of which he had experienced the sad issue. Foreseeing the advance of the English, he had burned the villages in the neighborhood of Paris, where they might have fixed their quarters. He did the same with the suburbs of Saint-Germain, Saint-Marcel, Notre-Dame-des-Champs. He turned a deaf ear to all King Edward's warlike challenges, and some attempts at an assault on the part of the English knights, and some sorties on the part of the French knights, impatient of their inactivity, came to nothing. At the end of a week Edward, whose army no longer found aught to eat, withdrew from Paris by the Chart Road, declaring his purpose of entering the good country of Buse, where he would recruit himself all summer, and whence he would return after vintage to resume the siege of Paris, whilst his lieutenants would ravage all the neighbouring provinces. When he was approaching Chartres, there burst upon his army, says Froissart, a tempest, a storm, an eclipse, a wind, a hail, an upheaval so mighty, so wondrous, so horrible, that it seemed as if the heaven were all a-tumble, and the earth were opening to swallow up everything. The stones fell so thick and so big that they slew men and horses, and there was none so bold but that they were all dismayed. There were at that time in the army certain wise men, who said that it was a scourge of God, sent as a warning, and that God was showing by signs that he would that peace should be made. Edward had by him certain discreet friends, who added their admonitions to those of the tempest. His cousin, the Duke of Lancaster, said to him, My lord, this war that you are waging in the kingdom of France is right wondrous and too costly for you. Your men gain by it, and you lose your time over to it to no purpose. You will spend your life on it, and it is very doubtful whether you will attain your desire. Take the offers made to you now, whilst you can come out with honour. For, my lord, we may lose more in one day than we have won in twenty years." The regent of France, on his side, indirectly made overtures for peace. The abbot of Cluny and the general of the Dominicans, legates of Pope Innocent VI, warmly seconded them, and negotiations were opened at the hamlet of Bretigny, close to Chartres. The king of England was a hard nut to crack, says Froissart. He yielded a little, however, and on the 8th of May, 1360, was concluded the Treaty of Bretigny, a peace disastrous indeed, but become necessary. Aquitaine ceased to be a French fief, and was exalted, in the King of England's interest, to an independent sovereignty, together with the provinces attached to Poitou, Saint-Ange, Anus, 
Aninoise, Perigord, Limousin, Quercy, Bigorre, Angomus, and Rorgue. The King of England, on his side, gave up completely to the King of France, Normandy, Maine, and the portion of Touraine and Anjou situated to the north of the Loire. He engaged further to solemnly renounce all pretensions to the crown of France, so soon as King John had renounced all rights of suzerainty over Aquitaine. King John's ransom was fixed at three millions of gold crowns, payable in six years, and John Galice Visconti, Duke of Milan, paid the first installment of it, six hundred thousand florins, as the price of his marriage with Isabel of France, daughter of King John. Hard as these conditions were, the peace was joyfully welcomed in Paris, and throughout northern France. The bells of the country churches, as well as of Notre Dame in Paris, songs and dances amongst the people, and liberty of locomotion and of residence secured to the English in all places, so that none should disquiet them or insult them, bore witness to the general satisfaction. But some of the provinces ceded to the King of England had great difficulty in resigning themselves to it. In Poitou, and in all the district of Santong, says Froissart, great was the displeasure of barons, knights, and good towns, when they had to be English. The town of La Rochelle was especially unwilling to agree thereto. It is wonderful what sweet and piteous words they wrote, again and again, to the King of France, begging him, for God's sake, to be pleased not to separate them from his own domains, or place them in foreign hands, and saying that they would rather be clipped every year of half their revenue than pass into the hands of the English. And when they saw that neither excuses, nor remonstrances, nor prayers were of any avail, they obeyed, but the men of most mark in the town said, We will recognize the English with the lips, but the heart shall beat to it never. Thus began to grow in substance and spirit, in the midst of war and out of disaster itself, per domna, Persedus ab ipso duxit opus animuc ferro, that national patriotism which had hitherto been such a stranger to feudal France, and which was so necessary for her progress towards unity, the sole condition for her of strength, security, and grandeur, in the state characteristic of the European world since the settlement of the Franks in Gaul. Having concluded the Treaty of Bretigny, the King of England returned on the 18th of May, 1360, to London, and on the 8th of July following, King John, having been set at liberty, was brought over by the Prince of Wales to Calais, where Edward III came to meet him. The two kings treated one another there with great courtesy. The King of England, says Froissart, gave the King of France at Calais Castle a magnificent supper, at which his own children, and the Duke of Lancaster, and the greatest barons of England, waited at table bareheaded. Meanwhile the Prince Regent of France was arriving at Amiens, and there receiving from his brother-in-law, Galdus Visconti, Duke of Milan, the sum necessary to pay the first installment of his royal father's ransom. Payment having been made, the two kings solemnly ratified at Calais the Treaty of Brittany. Two sons of King John, the Duke of Anjou and the Duke of Berry, with several other personages of consideration, princes of the blood, barons and burgesses of the principal good towns, were given as hostages to the King of England for the due execution of the treaty and Edward III negotiated between the King of France and Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, a reconciliation as precarious as ever. The work of pacification having been thus accomplished, King John departed on foot for Bologna, where he was awaited by the Dauphin, his son, and where the Prince of Wales and his two brothers, likewise on foot, came and joined him. 
All these princes passed two days together at Bologna in religious ceremonies and joyous galas, after which the Prince of Wales returned to Calais, and King John set out for Paris, which he once more entered, December 13, 1360. He was welcomed there, says Froissart, by all manner of folks, for he had been much desired there. Rich presents were made him, the prelates and barons of his kingdom came to visit him, they feasted him and rejoiced with him, as it was seemly to do, and the king received them sweetly and handsomely, for well he knew how. And that was all King John did know. When he was once more seated on his throne, the counsels of his eldest son, the late regent, induced him to take some wise and wholesome administrative measures. All adulteration of the coinage was stopped, the Jews were recalled for twenty years, and some securities were accorded to their industry and interests, and an edict renewed the prohibition of private wars. But in his personal actions, in his bearing and practices as a king, the levity, frivolity, thoughtlessness, and inconsistency of King John were the same as ever. He went about his kingdom, especially in southern France, seeking everywhere occasions for holiday-making and dispersing, rather than for observing and reforming the state of the country. During the visit he paid in 1362 to the new pope, Urban V, at Avignon, he tried to get married to Queen Joan of Naples, the widow of two husbands already, and not being successful, he was on the point of involving himself in a new crusade against the Turks. It was on his return from this trip that he committed the gravest fault of his reign, a fault which was destined to bring upon France and the French kingship even more evils and disasters than those which had made the Treaty of Brittany a necessity. In 1362 the young Duke of Burgundy, Philippe de Louvre, the last of the first house of the Dukes of Burgundy, descendants of King Robert, died without issue, leaving several pretenders to his rich inheritance. King John was, according to the language of the genealogists, the nearest of blood, and at the same time the most powerful, and he immediately took possession of the duchy, went on the 23rd of December, 1362, to Dijon, swore on the altar of St. Benignus that he would maintain the privileges of the city and of the province, and nine months after, on the 6th of September, 1363, disposed of the duchy of Burgundy in the following terms. Recalling again to memory the excellent and praiseworthy services of our right dearly beloved Philip, the fourth of our sons, who freely exposed himself to death with us, and all wounded as he was, remained unwavering and fearless at the Battle of Poitiers, we do concede to him and give him the duchy and peerage of Burgundy, together with all that we may have therein of right, possession, and proprietorship, for the which gift our said son hath done us homage as duke and premier peer of France." Thus was founded that second house of the Dukes of Burgundy which was destined to play, for more than a century, so great and often so fatal a part in the fortunes of France. Whilst he was thus preparing a gloomy future for his country and his line, King John heard that his second son, the Duke of Anjou, one of the hostages left in the hands of the King of England as security for the execution of the Treaty of Bretigny, had broken his word of honour and escaped from England, in order to go and join his wife at Guy's castle. Knightly faith was the virtue of King John, and it was, they say, on this occasion that he cried, as he was severely upbraiding his son, that if good faith were banished from the world, it ought to find an asylum in the hearts of kings. He announced to his counsellors, assembled at Amiens, his intention of going in person to England. An effort was made to dissuade him, and several prelates and barons of France told him that he was committing great folly when he was minded to again put himself in danger from the King of England. He answered that he had found in his brother the King of England, 
in the queen, and in his nephews, their children, so much loyalty, honour, and courtesy, that he had no doubt but that they would be courteous, loyal, and amiable to him, in any case. And so he was minded to go and make the excuses of his son, the Duke of Anjou, who had returned to France. According to the most intelligent of the chroniclers of the time, the continuer of William of Nongis, some persons said that the king was minded to go to England in order to amuse himself, and they were probably right, for kingly and knightly amusements were the favourite subject of King John's meditations. This time he found in England something else besides galas. He before long fell seriously ill, which mightily discouraged the king and queen of England, for the wisest in the country judged him to be in great peril. He died, in fact, on the 8th of April, 1364, at the Savoy Hotel, in London, whereat the king of England, the queen, their children, and many English barons were much moved, says Froissart, for the honour of the great love which the king of France, since peace was made, had shown them. France was at last about to have, in Charles V, a practical and an effective king. In spite of the discretion he had displayed during his four years of regency, from 1356 to 1360, his reign opened under the saddest auspices. In 1363, one of those contagious diseases, all at that time called the plague, committed cruel ravages in France. None, says the contemporary chronicler, could count the number of the dead in Paris, young or old, rich or poor. When death entered a house, the little children died first, then the menials, then the parents. In the smallest villages, as well as in Paris, the mortality was such that at Argenteuil, for example, where there were wont to be numbered seven hundred hearths, there remained no more than forty or fifty. The ravages of the armed thieves, or bandits, who scoured the country added to those of the plague. Let it suffice to quote one instance. In Buse, on the Orléans and Chartres side, some brigands and prowlers, with hostile intent, dressed as pig-dealers or cow-drivers, came to the little castle of Mur, close to Corbeil, and finding outside the gate the master of the place, who was a knight, asked him to get them back their pigs, which his menials, they said, had the night before taken from them, which was false. The master gave them leave to go in, that they might discover their pigs and move them away. As soon as they had crossed the drawbridge, they seized upon the master, threw off their false clothes, drew their weapons, and blew a blast upon the bagpipe, and forthwith appeared their comrades from their hiding-places in the neighbouring woods. They took possession of the castle, its master and mistress, and all their folk, and settling themselves there, they scoured from thence the whole country, pillaging everywhere, and filling the castle with the provisions they carried off. At the rumour of this thievish capture, many men-at-arms in the neighbourhood rushed up to expel the thieves and retake from them the castle. Not succeeding in their assault, they fell back on Corbeil, and then themselves set to ravaging the country, taking away from the farmhouses provisions and wine without paying a dolt, and carrying them off to Corbeil for their own use. They became before long as much feared and hated as the brigands, and all the inhabitants of the neighbouring villages, leaving their homes and their labour, took refuge, with their children and what they had been able to carry off, in Paris, the only place where they could find a little security. Thus the population was without any kind of regular force, anything like effectual protection. The temporary defenders of order themselves went over, and with alacrity, too, to the side of disorder, when they did not succeed in repressing it and the men-at-arms set readily about plundering, in their turn, the castles and country places whence they had been charged to drive off the plunderers. End of chapter 22, part 2